been thinking about this movie for ages, been telling everybody about it. These teenage girls fighting aliens in this remote Arctic community. These are places that I know. Yeah. And I could tell that people were, were responding to it. And it was like all the movies that I'd watched growing up, but in a place that was familiar to me, I really, really wanted to make it. But I just, for some reason, couldn't... Um, and it was just a, a, you know, I think that this is something familiar with lots of people, just like, you know, this, this idea of being like, well, why me? Like, why should I get to do this? And, um, or I'm not ready. And, um, and I think with something like this, you might never be ready. And so you just have to kind of, you know, throw your hat over the fence and then just go get it because yeah. you've told everybody. And, so I think it was just one of those things. And, and um, when, when I, I found out and, and when a doctor says to you, you know, you have a 50-50 chance of surviving the month, it just clarifies things in, in a real way. Um, and so it allowed me the freedom almost to be able to say, hey, I want to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's another thing that I was really grateful and f- for. And I try to think about and because and we our health is so precious and we don't know what's going to happen. And um so we should be doing uh, doing what we love if we can that was nyla Anukshuk. she's an indigenous director from canada and she recently released slashback a horror sci-fi movie about a group of inuit girls who save their remote arctic community from an alien invasion she says that the horror genre has always been a big part of her life her mom is a fan as well she actually introduced it to her One day, when Nyla and a friend were having a sleepover, her mom rented Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds for them. They were eight years old. That was the same year that Nyla and another friend would ride their bikes to the graveyard. They'd sit there and they'd write ghost stories. That's how she spent most of her days, until she was about 13 or 14. She lived in a town that was predominantly Christian and realized that her love of witches and magic was probably not appropriate. But by then, she had moved on to writing scripts anyway. Making Slashback was important to Nyla for a couple reasons. For one, she was able to film the script she'd been working on for years. It also helped her recover from a liver transplant. When she got the news about needing a transplant, she was told that she had a 50-50 chance of surviving the month. It was a grim and scary situation, but she made it through the month and received a transplant in May of 2017. That September, she went to Nunavut and shot the proof of concept for the movie. She wasn't wasting any time. Facing her mortality brought things into focus and helped her recognize the things that she believes are really important in life. Friends, family, and the relationships we build with them. It also helped her understand the importance of pursuing the things she wants in life. So here she is, Nyla Inukshuk. Welcome to Chattermarks, a podcast of the Anchorage Museum, dedicated to exploring Alaska and the Circumpolar North through the creative and critical thinking of ideas, past, present, and future. My name is Cody Liska, and I'll be your host. So I read that you like candy. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I can't believe that you, that is like a thing that is out there. But yeah, it is definitely um, enough of a, a thing in my life that I guess it makes sense. What's one of your favorite candies? Um, 
It's interesting, you know, because I've also had a, a liver transplant. And what a lot of people don't know about transplants is that when you when you have an organ that that's transplanted from another person and and in the case of the liver it's a digestive organ so it actually you end up sometimes and it's not all the time but with with transplant patients with digestive organs oftentimes you'll take on the cravings of the people whose organs you have hmm. um and so i always really loved candy like uh sour patch kids would be a, a favorite and now i've kind of shifted into more of like a chocolatey um, uh, I'm kind of into to chocolate and, and, and that sort of thing. So, I mean, um, Maltesers <laughs> is kind of a random one, but I love like a, a candy that you can get at, um, you know, at the movie theater. Yeah. Could you tell me more about your liver transplant? <laughs> I know I can't I can't bring that up and then not talk about it more and certainly it's like there if you actually now with that little piece of information go back and and watch flashback then you're like oh there's all these things about this you know you start thinking about this thing that's invading in a different way and mm -hmm. they talk about this ship that looks like and it sure does look like a liver um <laughs> and the um but it was obviously a big a big thing that happened to me. I was getting sick. It was was a, a crazy thing to happen, and then and finding out that I needed to have a transplant. But it was also, I think, with everything, you have to kind of try and find gratitude in in the lessons and things. And mm -hmm. for me, it was this. I had always been, you know, just put a lot of pressure on myself and was almost like overly ambitious. And when, and I worked in, you know, this industry that kind of rewards that where you're kind of moving at a really fast pace and almost bragging about how little sleep you get. Yeah. And, and then when I found out that I was really sick and, and when, when you're sick like that, the, you know, it's, it's this kind of scary conversation and, and you have this realization, um, at least I did, I was like, oh my gosh, like all of these all of these things that I thought were so important, they just actually don't matter at all. And and all these stresses that I had, um, that I go through life thinking are are these uh, really important things just aren't anymore. And what is important is you know your your the connections you have and your family and mm -hmm. and you know trying to build a happy life and that sort of thing. And so for me, it was this this realization that. Um, at the time I'd been developing Slashback, I was going to be writing it and producing it because at the time I'd mostly been working as a producer and also a lot, a lot of my directing stuff was really in the world of interactive. I, I, I love virtual reality, augmented reality, that sort of thing. But, um, when I found out I was sick, I, I it was like, whoa, I, uh, I want to make this movie. If, what am I doing just kind of this is my movie I, to write it and produce it and have someone else make it just seems totally crazy because I've been um, dreaming about making movies since I was a kid. Um, since I was, you know, dragging my cousins and making them get covered in blood and pretending they're ghosts <laughs> and that sort of thing. It's like, so if I if I get better, I really want to be wanting to be to be making this. And so I actually had my transplant in May of 2017, 
2017. And then in September of that 2017, I went up to Nunavut and I shot the proof of concept for the movie with a couple of the girls, Alexis and Nala Joss and Chelsea, um, who ended up acting in the movie. Mm-hmm. And we used that as kind of a proof of concept to, to show that that we could get this idea off the ground. And that's how we ended up getting the rest of the team together and, and, and making the movie. How did you find out that you were sick? I mean, I knew I was really sick. I just didn't really know how, how sick I was. And, and when I, I got the news about the transplant, it was, um, I was actually told it was that I had a 50-50 chance of surviving the month. Um, and the, but the thing about those kinds of, of things, it's not like, you know, at the, at the end of that 30 days you die, it's like at the end of 30 days, it's still, you got a 50, 50 chance of surviving the month. Um, and so, but then you get put on this list and, um, and it's a process. Luckily I'm in Canada, we have free healthcare and, and, um, so there's lots of stresses, but figuring out how to pay for every, anything was not one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but it was, it was um, a, a really, really challenging time in my life, of course, and something that is, is still, it's not that far, far away. It was, uh, the, the transplant was five and a half years ago. Yeah. And so it, it was kind of almost this, I think with the movie, it was, it was almost like a, well, I, I think you kind of have to be a little crazy to be able to make, a, to, to kind of make a movie and especially to kind of make a movie like this where you're um, with, with no previous um, directing experience and to go and make a project like this. Um, but for me, it was also, I was just, you know, learning so much about myself and, and kind of reco- recovering from this, from this crazy thing. And then mm-hmm. also building confidence. And um, it was, yeah, just a, a, a kind of a, a crazy and amazing time. But now it was like, you know, the, the, once the movie was done, it kind of was like, holy moly, mm-hmm. <laughs> I can breathe yeah. a bit, a bit and, and kind of look back and be like, that was, that was kind of an insane thing to do while also recovering from this crazy, crazy thing. And, um, but you know, it, what's, I, I think it would have been crazy. It, making a movie would have been crazy regardless. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and it's so funny now because I travel with the the cast, these teenagers that I've I've known now for years, and um, they they say sometimes, "Oh, I wish we could go back and do it all again," because then we do such a better job. And it's you know I have to. It's so important. I think, and I always am reminding them. But what's so great is in reminding them, I'm always reminding myself and mm-hmm. and learning so so much. Um, just like kind of giving myself some lessons along the way is, is, you know, you can just be grateful for the lessons that you learned and hope that you can just be humble enough to be able to see the, the where the lessons need to be learned and, and try and get better and, and uh, try and, you know, get better with the next thing that you do. Yeah. Um, 
And that's what's so exciting. It kind of was, it, it was totally scary with, with the movie. It felt like I was learning a million lessons a day. And it was so scary and it felt like you're kind of jumping into freezing cold water and just seeing if you could swim and then like surviving and then being like, I guess, mm -hmm. I guess we're going to keep on doing that for another 30 <laughs> days. Yeah. Um, and then, and, but it's, you know, it's just now for this one, it's like, how can I be, how can I be making sure that I'm not in that same position the next time? Like, how can I feel more prepared? And, mm -hmm. and part of it is you just really don't know the job until you're, until you're doing it. Yeah. And there's no real way of kind of understanding what it is to kind of be leading a 60 person crew and team and, and, but that's what, you know, was, was so scary and great is, is kind of just trying to, um, yeah, just then figure out how do I how do I prepare for the next one, and the, and and now I actually do know how to prepare because I have a better understanding of what the job actually is. And those early projects, you know, any project really is a snapshot of where your mind was at that moment in time, and also your skill set. Yeah, and that's a cool thing too. And then you can kind of see how, how you're changing and then what things that you, you, you kind of have kept, what worked. And um, there's certain, obviously, elements of, of the movie that I feel like, yeah, they're, they, it, it is a, a reflection of me um, and my tastes and that sort of thing. And then obviously on so many other levels, I feel like it's not representative of all, at all of where I am as a filmmaker because I'm because I've grown so much, I feel like, since then. Um, and I've just been kind of really um, itching to get started on the next project. And the um, and I've got, you know, I've got another feature script written and 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 the way I'm preparing that script and that uh, the, the approach to that project is so different than than with Slashback. Um, but you can't they, they won't let you make a second movie until you finish your first one. And, yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> and with Slashback, there were a lot of things that kind of kept us from getting, I mean, the p pandemic was really the main one. And mm -hmm. we had some, some winter shoots that we were planning on shooting in March of 2020. And then in March of 2020, we're like, oh, maybe we just wait a couple of months and see how things are. <laughs> and then, um, Eventually, we did just have to go up in October of 2020 with a small crew, but it, it meant um, we had to, Nunavut had had zero COVID cases at that point. Mm -hmm. And so they were being really strict. And so our crew had to quarantine in a hotel by the airport in Ottawa for two weeks. Mm. And in our own rooms, we weren't even allowed to see, go between rooms at all. We could meet there was one little street behind the hotel that you were allowed to kind of pace back and forth on mm -hmm. and so we had to stay there for two weeks and then we could fly up to Nunavut and kind of work up there but it was this crazy kind of thing just to kind of finish the movie and and then the post process was its own kind of fun crazy and uh, never-ending thing yeah do you think getting sick and getting a liver transplant helped you slow down at all? Yeah, definitely. I think slow down, but then also I think sometimes it is really hard. Sometimes the hardest thing is actually saying, I want to do 
this really hard thing or this thing that maybe other people, lots of people really want to do or that not a lot of people get to do, like directing a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just to kind of, I've, I, I'd been thinking about this movie for ages, been telling everybody about it, these teenage girls fighting aliens in this remote Arctic community. These are places that I know. And I could tell that people were were responding to it. And it was like all the movies that I'd watched growing up, but in a place that was familiar to me, I really, really wanted to make it. But I just, for some reason, couldn't... um, and it was just a, a, you know, I think that this is something familiar with lots of people, just like, you know, this, this idea of being like, well, why me? Like, why should I get to do this? And, um, or I'm not ready. And, um, and I think with something like this, you might never be ready. And so you just have to kind of, you know, throw your hat over the fence and then just go get it because yeah. you've told everybody. And, so I think it was just one of those things. And, and um, when, when I, I found out and, and when a doctor says to you, you know, you have a 50-50 chance of surviving the month, it just clarifies things in, in a real way. Um, and so it allowed me the freedom almost to be able to say, hey, I want to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's another thing that I was really grateful and f- for. And I try to think about and because and we our health is so precious and we don't know what's going to happen. And um so we should be doing uh, doing what we love if we can earlier you said that you know you're you're telling people that you want to work on this movie and i wonder if you were telling people you know not only to share an idea but also to hold you accountable to actually follow through with it yeah you know and i mean i think that that um the thing about me is i've i've always been wanting to just make things and get things going and and I'm good at that. I'm get good at getting people excited about something and but I also always um just felt more comfortable in as a producer you're kind of some, supporting someone else's creative vision. And that's just kind of um when I went to I went to film school, I went to Ryerson in Toronto. Um it's called something else now, Toronto Metropolitan University or something. Um and while I was there, it was, I actually went thinking I was going to be, I wanted to be an editor. I, that was something mm. that I had really fallen in love with when I was in high school. And it is such a creative um, part of the process. I mean, what's so cool is there, there's so many creative elements of the process. Yeah. And I find all of them so fascinating. And that's what I love about directing is you get to work with all these amazingly creative people that are experts at what they do and get to work with them in these I mean, just like it's it's such a cool um, thing to be. It's such a team sport making movies. So I, I thought that maybe I would be an editor and and but I also love lists and budgets and that sort of thing. And so I yeah. kind of fa- I, I, I like producing. I like um, I like the logistical uh, side of putting things together. And, and so I would do that for a lot of my friends was produce their stuff. And, um, I think that you kind of just, what it, it was because it was something that I, that I liked, that I was good at, that I thought that that's maybe what I should be doing. And, um, and so it was harder for me to kind of, um, you know, say that I wanted to be, uh, leading this creative vision where I'm having to rely on other people to help me. And, and, 
um, for some reason, it was a little easier for me to be working hard to help others. Mm -hmm. And I, and that's actually the thing about what, when I got sick and, and because I, I had found myself in positions where I was, you know, really unsatisfied with the kind of work that I was doing, um, but working a lot. Mm -hmm. And then when, when I got sick and I just kind of told myself, you know, if I'm going to work this hard, it's got to be on something that I'm really passionate about. And it should be my own thing. Yeah. And I'm just going to take some time to be doing that. And, and that's what I did. And, and it means saying no to things that sound cool, but they might not be, you know, I've got to kind of trust that doing my own thing is valuable too. Do you remember something that you said no to? You know, something that was cool that you were like, no, I'm working on this right now. Yeah. Um, I can also re remember saying like, no, I can't, but can we just talk about it? Because I would love to talk about it. And then, you know, you kind of get, <laughs> just like, you kind of just end up just wanting to be involved in some way. Yeah. Um, but I definitely have said no to a couple of things that might um, just not allow me the time to, to be able to to work on, on the, the, the larger projects that I want to be able to do. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, but it also means sometimes saying yes, like taking on projects that, that are small, but, and may, don't make a lot of sense and not a lot of people will see them, but it's because it's, it's, again, it's something that I'm really passionate about that is fulfilling to me. So I say yes to it for a different reason. And so mm -hmm. one example is like, I do still love interactive stuff. VR, um, different ways of telling stories, um, and d different ways of, of thinking about sitting in a story or a character and, and thinking about how different ways you could explore that story given different mediums, whether it's a comic book or a video game or a movie. Mm -hmm. And so, um, earlier in this, this past spring, um, I had a chance to, I, I was mentoring some artists in Norway that were working on a project that was going to be presented at the Venice Biennale. And it was using five red cameras at once to shoot 270 degrees around. Um, the, it, the room, the space that it was going to be projected onto is, was a 270 degree screen that's seven feet high. So the, the, resol the resolution was actually 24K. So to, to shoot at that resolution was just, you required some, required that many cameras shooting at incredible resolution mm -hmm. uh, it was really really fun to figure out and then I got an opportunity to to make one myself for essentially no money and got a day and a half to shoot it and but it was just really fun for me to kind of think about and so I went and shot it with a small crew in a in a town called Yellowknife in in the Northwest Territories and it was so much fun. I loved the, I really loved the team that we got together there and got to show it in Venice. And it was just a really kind of fun and different way to kind of stretch your imagination and think, okay, how can I have, um, using what we've got, which is what we can see and what we can hear um, in this particular format, which is you can see and hear things all around you mm -hmm. to make people feel something. Um, and that's kind of, you know, it's, it's nice to kind of be able to, to, to stretch, um, and think about those kinds of things creatively. And, 
Um, and that means, that means taking the, the time to make sure I can, I can be able to do projects like that as well. Mm-hmm. And you grew up in and kind of moved around Nunavut, right? Yeah. So I, I was born in the community of Iglulik, um, which is, a about the same size of Pang, about 1,500 people, uh, but moved to Iqaluit when I was two years old with my mom and my older brother. Mm-hmm. And then when I was eight years old, I moved <laughs> what we call down south, basically anywhere that's not the Arctic, we call down south. Okay. And <laughs> so to, to a, a really kind of small farming town in, in southern Ontario. Um, and then at one point my parents moved back up to the Arctic and, but, but I kind of stayed down, uh, I was at, at university at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, it's a place that I, I love. And, and in particular, this community of Pang has been this, um, just a, a really special place to kind of continually re- return to, um, just for work, mm-hmm. but also because my nephews, they're from there. My sister-in-law, Julie, she's from the community of Pang. And my nephews grew up there and they now live in, in Iqaluit, which is the capital. Um, and, and and a lot of people move from these small communities to Iqaluit, which is this kind of capital city of 8,000 people. So it's still really small. But getting to go and travel to these even smaller communities um, where the pace of life is just so different. It's, it's really, really kind of amazing and special. And I'm actually going back to my home community in a couple of weeks to show the movie. Um, and that's my dad and I've got sisters and a brother and a bunch of nieces and stuff that live there. So that'll be a really fun screening. And I'm bringing one of the actors with me to kind of share a bit of, a, a bit of my family and community with her. You know, in my experience, when we return to ideas and places as creative people, we're trying to tell a story or maybe even work through something for ourselves. Yeah. Do you feel like you're trying to do either of those? Definitely with um, <laughs> working through ideas. And um, I, I think with the second script, it, it's actually set that I that I've. Uh, just recently written with the same co-writer that I worked on Slashback with, Ryan Cabin. And it's it's set in a city, in a southern city. But in the same way that Slashback was a way for me to process certain things, this one was definitely a way for me to process how I was feeling at a certain time. And that was really two years ago in, I guess, the summer of 2020 when the, it felt like the world was just changing so much. Um, the death of George Floyd had just changed the conversation about race and, mm-hmm. and storytelling and authentic storytelling, who deserves to tell what stories, those kinds of things that in, in some ways that were very um, familiar language to the, to in, the indigenous screen community um, and now was being essentially used by everyone. And there were also just different Parasite had just won Best Picture. Get Out had had come out the year before. Both mm-hmm. movies that I'm obsessed with and love. And um, but it was just a it, the industry was starting to kind of look at stories in a different way. And for me, I was kind of 
wrestling with the ethics of either drawing from my own personal trauma or what felt like so much worse was my community's trauma, of which there is a lot, uh, for entertainment. And and that I could see that I was benefiting in a way um, from trauma that just felt um, so strange to me. And then, but the, the what I love also about movies and horror and genre in particular, and I love horror movies, is that it, it allows you to kind of, we as people um, experience fear and violence and, um, you know, all the time in little mm-hmm. and big ways. Um, and, and processing that fear um, or our anxieties and it, it, it through through movies is something that that it, it just is um, really exciting to to Ryan and I and and so that kind of this fear and anxiety over over the ethics of all of this that kind of became the focus for the for the next script and mm-hmm. really was this really kind of therapeutic process I say therapeutic and laugh because it almost I do think it kind of also gave me an identity crisis and I went through a bit of a a dark period but I feel like I came out of it and was like okay I feel like I've processed that maybe I don't even need to make this movie after all (laughs) um but I do luckily I like the script and I like the I think it is fun and and um and a a couple of other people have read it and and think so too so I think that it's it's going to be fun to kind of work through but also a a challenge for sure with um Mm -hmm. the actors I bring on and and all of that stuff I think that there are, at least for this conversation, maybe two different camps of where creativity and where really good pieces of art come from. And um, one, I think, that you were getting at was from a place of trauma. And I think that maybe the other one is, you know, somebody's just being creative, but talking about creating from a place of trauma um, and the product of that being really authentic and really connecting with people. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I think that these really strong human emotions are the ones that people are going to connect with the most and feel the most. And when I think Mm -hmm. about movies that have an impact on me or there are moments within a movie that I'm like, wow, that, that is like, it leaves me thinking about it um, and feeling something long after I've, I've finished watching it. It often is, um, you know, connected to these larger kind of human emotions or something where it might be that, you know, you just see the movie differently in the different phases of your life because you've now experienced different things. And so you're like, oh, that, like, it just, I, I, even an example of that for me is The Birds. Yeah. Um, or Psycho, you know? Yeah. It, movies that I loved, but I watched, I, I, The Birds I watched for, for the first time when I was eight years old, I remember very specifically, because it was the first Hitchcock movie I watched, and mm-hmm. eight years old is too young. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, but my mom is obsessed with horror movies, and so she, she had, like, rented this horror movie for me and a friend at a sleepover, and was like you guys are gonna love it and we did it was really scary but the um 
obviously the there's so many themes within it that I just wouldn't have understood as a child mm -hmm. and then um even watching it as a, a young woman that you are seeing it in one way and and I think of you know the the character and because she's kind of seen as being a bit flighty and and she's you know young and carried cares more about like silly things but you know that when you're 20 years old you are also young and silly and caring about those silly things yeah. and then but then also when uh, when you're older and maybe you've gone through a breakup or something and then you're seeing these like the 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 themes of the male characters in different ways or the relationships with the men and their mother <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah and these are things that you know that, that just kind of hit you differently at different points in your life and i think that is great because it's it's just kind of you again it's just bring um you're, it's kind of drawing on real emotions and and kind of neuroses and and that's what I love about about kind of psychological thrillers and horror and genre and that sort of thing is mm -hmm. um and I say I I, I like all kinds of horror but I um the kind of stuff that freaks I get less I think freaked out by the things about ghosts or spirits or that sort of thing mostly i think because i wasn't raised with a ton of religion so i think that that is something that was is just it, it maybe doesn't affect me as much but things that are that feel like they could happen and happen to you or or is something that i find so interesting i actually didn't watch the birds until this year, you know, oh. during Halloween, I just had a list of stuff that I'm like, I really need to catch up on this stuff. And I'm a yeah. lifelong horror fan, like big, big horror fan. And a scene in the birds that just really impressed me was the one inside the diner, you know, Tippy Hedren goes in there and she's trying to tell everybody that there are these killer birds out there. And what happens so incredibly and organically in that scene is how many people she gets involved but it doesn't seem forced you know there's i think a woman and she's messing like an older woman and she's messing with like a vending machine in the back and mm -hmm. so then she wanders up front there's like uh, some people at a table, they overhear the conversation. So now they're involved. And it's just like one of these like masterful scenes yeah. where I remember watching it and I was like, I got to rewatch that. And I rewound it and watched it again. And it was just as impressive the, the second time as the first time. Yeah. it's a, Some of those movies are so good just to kind of I mean, especially with my approach with Slashback, we really just didn't have and we didn't have a ton of time for rehearsals or blocking or that sort of thing. But just like um, the way I'm thinking about this, the, the second movie and and really kind of doing that work of really trying to understand. Um, well, one, it's like really trying to um, try I kind of I mentioned this one in regards to the 270 degree project more so because it's like that one it's not 360 degrees it's 270 meaning there's a black space that mm. you're playing with within it and so I was like you kind of are having to um try and use what 
you can see and what you can hear to make people feel something. And that means something different in a 270 degree space with a black space that can be utilized than with a traditional camera frame and editing and and that sort of thing. And, and so it's just kind of going back and doing that work that, um, I mean, and Hitchcock is so great at it, of course, with, is, is just like, how can you kind of be building those scenes and, um, it, well, I mean, depending on, on the style, of course, if you want a Hitchcock style or whatever, mm-hmm. but. Are there any specific moments from your childhood that influence the decisions that you make in filmmaking? Hmm. I'm sure. Um, I, I say, yeah, because I mean, I've, I've always loved scary stories. Um, the, I mean, the fact that I was, you know, had a mother that was pushing Hitchcock on me when I was a child, <laughs> those kinds of things definitely had an impact. Cause I think that there's, um, you know, I having worked with these teenagers from the, the slashback girls from the time they were about 11 to now they're 17, 18. And seeing and I would I would kind of be away from them for a bit and then I I'd go back and and meet up with them to do some writing or something and they they would be kind of trying figuring out who they are mm-hmm. and figuring out where they fit in and and trying things out and and your um and I remember Alexis one day who's she's just this chatterbox and then coming up one time her saying oh I don't really talk anymore I I just journal my feelings I'm like, okay. And it was really funny. She was carrying around a journal and writing everything all the time. And it was, um, but I think for me, movies were definitely a big part of that. I think that there was um, just being a fan of movies, but also I distinctly remember starting in grade three um, with a friend of mine, we would go on bike rides to the graveyard and we just sit in the graveyard and write ghost stories. <laughs> and when, and this is how I spent like most of my days. So and mm-hmm. we would go and sometimes we would, um, until I was in grade eight and I remember that friend just kind of was like, oh, I think that maybe we shouldn't have, be having seances anymore. It was one of these <laughs> things that was like, <laughs> um, that, and, and I mentioned I didn't, wasn't particularly religious, but these, uh, I moved to this small town where uh, this kind of farming town and there most people were quite Christian and and at a certain point realizing like oh this is not like appropriate um this kind of <laughs> love of witches and magic and, yeah. and that sort of thing um but you know by the time I was in grade seven and eight I was also you know writing scripts and mm-hmm. and um I mean they were all so silly but uh, I was um, I also grew up in the '90s that had great scary movies and and bad scary movies yeah. that I was obsessed with too. Um, <laughs> but I, I was a little too young for Scream when it first came out. Um, but my older brother was had him and his friends had watched it, and so it was almost kind of like lore to me. And so by the time the second movie came out, I was obsessed with it. And mm-hmm. um, uh, the Sixth Sense came out when I was in grade eight. So I was, yeah, I was really kind of movies and, and scary stories and, and all of that stuff was a, was a big part of, 
um, part of my life. And when it was actually really funny at one point, I'm up there in the hills in Pang getting ready to, to make the movie. And it's about these you know, girls that ch are chasing, chasing monsters. And it, yeah, it just was, it was like, oh yeah, like all of these things that I kind of have been doing all my life, it, it kind of makes sense that I'd be doing this in, in a way that just kind of felt, uh, it, it felt really kind of like I was uh, doing something that, you know, that I, that, that was important to me, I guess. Yeah, a reflective moment. Yeah, even if even if it all seems is silly, you know, because they say that all of it is silly. Going to the graveyard with your friends to sell <laughs> to write <laughs> stories, like it doesn't feel like a job, certainly. Um, and and I think even when I was a teenager, I was like, I I really struggled when I was sixteen, seventeen, because I think you put so much pressure on your on young people to kind of, and and certainly I did when I was younger of just trying to figure out what you wanted to be doing with the rest of your life by mm -hmm, the time you yeah. finished high school and, and decided what you wanted to do next. And I, I just knew I loved movies and I loved scary movies, but I also did well in school and I, uh, being indigenous, you know, there's this kind of idea that, and it's something that I really try and um, discourage when I'm talking with other young people is this idea that that if you're uh, indigenous and kind of just even mediocre then you're this you have this responsibility to be a role model to other people mm -hmm. and it just does put a lot of pressure on you and um, I kind of felt like I should maybe be doing something more important for my community uh, becoming a doctor or something I don't know um, and and so, um, and, and it was something that I really kind of struggled with. And, and, and I luckily had a program in, it was at a different school. I had to go to a different high school for a semester, but they um, basically did media studies in the morning. And then in the afternoons, you had access to cameras, these HD video cameras and editing suites with uh, Final Cut Pro. Yeah. And, um, and you could just make whatever you wanted. And you, you did that for a semester and a lot of people did nothing. And me and my friends, we made the stupidest movies ever. <laughs> um, and, but it was like, um, I can see on my phone, my, my friend from high school that I met, like making movies together, you know, he's just texting me, but it's, it, he, he's an editor now and he does all the kind of reality shows here in Canada. And, um, but it's, it was just this, it was an opportunity for me to be like, oh yeah, this is, this is what I want to be doing. And, and was mm -hmm. the reason I kind of ended up choosing to go to film school and, and kind of even thinking about it as a, as a job really.
I interviewed musician and podcaster James Domic Jr. earlier this year, and at a certain point in our conversation, he talked about the importance of movies in indigenous communities as entertainment and then how it results in so many people in those communities having a wealth of knowledge about movies. I wonder if you've had a similar experience yourself or maybe recognized it in others. Yeah, I think so. Um... I certainly know a ton of nerdy native people <laughs> and it was, uh, you know, I think of like, um, the, the DJs who did the music for a slashback. I, mm-hmm. I, I had uh, these amazing indigenous DJs, a tribe called red. Uh, they actually now go by hallucination. Um, and they did a lot of the music and, and then I had another composer kind of doing more of a traditional score, but both of those, those guys, especially bear, um, he is, such a nerd and collects um you know it's so funny he'll like be talking about his he collects their toys right like action (laughs) figures and stuff and he'll be like oh yeah well i always buy two because i have to have one that i can keep in the box and the other that i can play with yep yep. i'm like excuse me um can we go back and talk about how you're playing with your toys as a as a 45 year old man um and it's uh but that's and and that's what i love about hanging out with them is just like we can talk we can just like um play video games and and talk about um you know the end um quote terminator and and all of those kinds of things um it's it's funny to kind of hear about it as a as a as like a a kind of a larger thing but i think that there's definitely um nerd culture is uh is strong in in indigenous communities for sure growing up what movies do you think were important to you yeah um so i loved um like i think a lot of people my age the spielberg movies Mm -hmm. goonies et jurassic park um, Indiana Jones, love Star Wars, obsessed with Star Wars, of course. And then horror was just kind of a, just, um, always something that was a big part of my life. Um, Mm -hmm. so Hitchcock and, and the birds, Psycho, uh, Psycho was a big one for me. Anthony Perkins was like, my high school crush, which is a problem. <laughs> like the literal psycho. Um, and uh, yeah, but I also, um, I loved the Scream movies. Those were um, kind of just had a really big impact on me. I And Jaws, I, I think I watched every day for years. <laughs> mm, okay. Um, I always had, we had a rule, like whenever we went to the video store, because, you know, you go to Blockbuster and with, because I have two brothers, they were always allowed to to choose two movies and I was allowed to choose four because you could always get six. There was like a deal of three movies, so we would get six. And and, and so my, my brothers could each choose a movie and for some reason I got four. And, but w- even within that, there was a rule that my brothers kind of gave me within my choices. And it was that, um, that I could only choose one movie. I could only rent one movie that I had already seen before. 
because other because I you know would often just like rent the same movies or just would want to see something I'd already seen. Mm-hmm. But then it was so for some reason my brothers felt it was important for me to also be choosing three movies that I had never seen before. Yeah, and um, and so I think that even that like this idea that that watching movies was was um, definitely not discouraged and and it was kind of um, just something that I did and that it, 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 it was just obviously something that I love to do, but um, that there was even then a bit of an obsessiveness to it. And, uh, and, and then by high school, I was kind of, you know, making movies with some of my friends and, and certainly there were nights where my dad would kind of just come in and say like, you know, is your work saved? And I would say yes. And he's like, they just like shut the computer off. <laughs> it's like, you're going to bed. No more editing. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it is really kind of funny that, um, you know, just like it's it, the, the kind of the idea of making things and, and making things with my friends was, was always something that was, that I was doing for fun. Mm-hmm. I think the horror and sci-fi genres have always been really inclusive. So many TV shows and movies included themes and subjects that pushed the boundaries of what was deemed acceptable at the time. For example, The Twilight Zone and Night of the Living Dead talk about racial injustice. Basically, if you can come up with a story that can scare people and maybe teach them something as well, then horror and sci-fi fans are more than willing to check it out, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's, what's really fun about both of those, um, genres is that you can kind of, um, explore these, these larger issues. And sometimes they can just be really heavy things that you wouldn't really want to be listening to or learning about necessarily. Um, or you wouldn't be having fun while doing so, but then you can be doing it in a way that's, um, accessible mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. you can, and then it's really starting a conversation and really it could be like, I think of a movie like Barbarian, for example, that tons of people watched and it could start a conversation about things that really, like if you were to watch a movie about men or, or, you know, whatever it is, like it's that it, um, that it's a way to kind of tackle some some things that can be just touchy for people to talk about mm-hmm. um but in a way that is really kind of fun and um you know makes you think about things I read this Reddit comment a while back and it was about how frustrating certain movies about the black experience in America can be that not every movie with black actors and actresses has to be about traumatic historical events like slavery. This commenter identified themselves as an African-American and said that sometimes they just want to watch a movie that's closer to their modern day experience or maybe even just something to shut their brains off to like a horror movie or a sci-fi movie. Do you agree with that or do you disagree with that? I definitely agree that if, um, in to, but that's not to say that I don't think that movies that talk about race or use the use race as a metaphor are not important. And, And I also think that some people, are hear race and 
are so sensitive to it that it almost is like this they they can um that that they don't even like to hear about it at all and, and i think that that kind of also even um i don't think that people like to feel like they're being taught a lesson mm. really um and when, when um a movie like get out came out mm -hmm. so it's so good so original um mm -hmm. and it, it felt like it was such a specific voice and i think because of the success of that then all of a sudden it was like oh like people want to 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 hear stories about um genre but dealing with race mm -hmm. and then we've got got inundated with with people trying to recreate what happened with get out and what happened with parasite which is also a great movie that deals with class. And mm -hmm. I think people can sense when something is a cool original story and when something is trying to sell them something or, or is trying to sell them an idea in order to, to kind of make a movie or get it or, or it can kind of feel cheap um, when it's, you know, when we're capitalizing on these things, racism and these really dark chapters within history um, for these thrills and to kind of try and say this larger message about, you know, maybe what's going on in happening today and, and that sort of thing. And so I think that, that there is this balance. Um, I struggle with that myself. Uh, you know, how do I, um, and, and also as a, film, a filmmaker who's racialized, who's indigenous, and um, I identify as mixed race, so I'm white and indigenous. And it's like, race is a part of, uh, it plays into lots of elements of my life. Um, but does that have to, you know, when it comes to the kind of stories I want to be telling? Um, and I, I mean, I don't necessarily, uh, I've, uh, especially because of the work that I've done through this script, but I mean, this character feels the pre that, that, that I've developed um, in this second project, you know, can feel locked in to what it, what it doesn't mean to be telling an indigenous story. Does it have to, and, and can it just, you know, how, how specific does it have to be? And, mm -hmm. um, I think the, uh, as a black filmmaker, as an indigenous filmmaker, the, the freedom to, to kind of do whatever we want and tell whatever kind of stories we want. Um, they could have, they ha could have nothing to do with, with the indigenous experience or the black experience. Um, and that's our, that's our freedom, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And, um, but it's also our freedom to talk about race if we want to, and, yeah. and then you can just not watch it. Um, I, I think, but I think that, you know, it's, it's, we're kind of in this interesting moment where it's like, um, we're trying to figure out how to make space and, um, and then, you know, within that for, for, black and indigenous 
filmmakers were um to to figure out what our voice is and um and and that there there's you know there's um so many of us making things now that it is it's not like we're all making one we're all making genre that's that's talking about racial issues mm-hmm. um one of my best friends zoe hopkins she's got an amazing movie called run woman run that's about uh, a woman kind of it's like a rom-com set on the res but like really about self-love and um i i, I love that there's you know now that there is more opportunities for for people to be telling different kinds of stories that we're going to see a, a bunch of different types of stories and and um and hopefully there there will be some that can kind of be able to yeah just also speak to to our everyday issues and the and we and a lot of those look like the same same kinds of things that that white people go through and um and and, and so the, there's uh I, I'm sure there's going to be kind of room for those kinds of stories as well. Yeah, I I got this feeling while I was watching Slashback that there are many elements that make the story indigenous and there are important issues that it addresses, but ultimately it's an alien invasion story that takes place in an indigenous community with strong, proud, funny indigenous people as the protagonists. Yeah. Yeah. I think that there is a lot of people ask about the, you know, the metaphors. And if I think one of the things going into the, into this project, I just knew I wanted to make a fun alien invasion movie and that the girls are fighting aliens, that that it's Mm -hmm. not a metaphor for anything else, that these are aliens that have landed and and these (laughs) girls are fighting them. And, and that, um, I already knew that it being a group of teenagers from an indigenous community facing an invading threat that people from the outside were already going to place this metaphor of colonization on top of that, that we didn't have to do anything. And in fact, that if I, if we mentioned that, if we tried to tip our hat in any way, that it would feel, um, it would feel redundant and kind of cheesy. So it was, it was important to kind of not be leaning into that sort of thing and really just focus on the aliens and the fun of that. And, and knowing that, um, like, because audiences are so used to kind of hearing these, having these message films and, and, Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I mean, and there is kind of, you know, these girls have to decide whether or not they're, you know, that they're going, that their communities worth saving from these aliens and they're the ones that are uniquely capable of saving it but whether that has to do with aliens or white people or whatever i mean that is <laughs> that is on other people kind of placing that on and so that it, it was kind of um yeah it's um it, it is kind of you know this this balance of trying to figure out but growing up we i watched et and and was able to place uh, imagine myself as Elliot and my brother and like Mm. Michael and his friends and like when they're kind of biking along and so it's you know the same kind of thing it's just like you know it's within uh, a a kind of environment that I knew um, and just kind of trusting that other people would kind of be able to get excited about it. 
I could have been reading too much into this, but I also thought there was a lot of talk about colonization without actually talking about colonization. You know, this draw to go to the big city, some of the clothing being worn, even talk of fast food. Yeah, well, I think that there's just this level of shame that, when, mm. and certainly when hanging out with these teenagers that we realized that there was this shame that was appearing in their language when it came to, to stuff that was indigenous or Inuk and they, um, and they definitely, yeah, they had this, it, it was really funny at one point with Ryan and I, we were hanging out a lot with these kids and they were kind of imagining, oh, can you imagine if we were a family? And what would our name be? And it was something like the Joneses or something. It was like, could not be any more generic. And it was just like imagining where we'd live. And one of the girls mentioned Canado, which is this like really, this suburb of Ottawa, which is this like random suburb of our capital city of Canada. And it's like, hmm. could not imagine a more boring place for this family to live. <laughs> but it is, it was really interesting to see um, just the ways in which through their language that this kind of thing would would come up and, and we did have conversations about it and and because sometimes they would say oh that's so Inuk I'd be like what do you mean by that like oh it's so ghetto oh, what do you mean by that oh it's so poor hmm. and it's like well let's talk about this and what it means for you to be going around saying that's so Inuk when you're talking about something that is, you know, has really nothing to do with our, our culture or anything. And also then how do we as women, I was about to say young women, I'm not so young anymore. These, as young, these young women, I'm like, how are we, you know, wanting to think about ourselves? And, and we all agreed that we wanted to be working towards, if we're not already there, thinking of ourselves and being proud of being Indigenous. Yeah. And so if we wanted to be proud Indigenous women, that we had to be using language that was prideful and not using language that's shameful. And just that kind of switch of recognizing that within the way we spoke and and how that was reflected was just something that was important for the work we did. But then, um, and it was hard that's hard for teenagers to be working through these kinds of things. And, and so that kind of coming through in, in the language and, and certainly with stuff that I related to growing up and, and having moved from the Arctic to this kind of small white community mm -hmm. um, and just ha carrying a bit of shame for things that felt different. Um, and and then growing up and realizing that those things are actually really are really wonderful and there's so much about our our communities and our culture that are so great. Do you know when you started to appreciate your culture and your traditions? Hmm. It really kind of has been a this lifelong process of of um, and a big part of it has actually been the work that I've done with the Indigenous Screen community. Um, so when I went to Ryerson, which is in Toronto, I, uh, after I graduated, I got a job at a production company that was owned by an Indigenous woman called Big, Big Soul Productions. Laura Milliken runs the production company. And all of the employees were Indigenous. Mm -hmm. And so I was, I was a production coordinator and um, then an associate producer. And um, we worked with Indigenous directors. And it was... 
uh, just a, a really kind of wonderful environment. And even though it was a, the First Nations community in, in Southern Ontario and in the rest of Canada is different. It's like a different culture than, than Inuit that live in the Arctic. Mm -hmm. So they have very different traditions, smudging, that sort of thing was something totally new to me. And so I was learning so much about First Nations cultures and being introduced to Indigenous cultures of the, this community that I now live in, Toronto. And, um, and through that was seeing so much beauty in, in these cultures and then also recognizing the beauty within, um, within my own community because I was able to share some of the stuff that I had from, from my home community with, with, the, with the people that I worked with that were curious about um, about Inuit and through that work, I got to travel up to, to Nunavut quite a bit. And then through my own work was traveling up to the Arctic. And a lot of my own personal work was around scary stories. And that is actually it, it, the tradition of telling scary stories is one that Inuit have been doing for a really long time. Mm. So many of our stories are, um, cautionary tales, like a lot of cultures, um, but because the environment in the Arctic is so, <laughs> it's so dramatic. It's so, it's terrifying that our, our stories are equally terrifying. And so we've got all these spirits that can, you know, just wake up in a bad mood. And, and, and so there's all of these different kinds of myths and legends that have that incorporate you know all these different types of monsters and spirits and taking their vengeance and and that sort of thing and so those sorts of things always were fascinating to me and and i had uh, written a short film called Kayutayuk that was about one of these myths and so it can through that kind of work and connecting um with different elders and storytellers and other filmmakers as well. Um, mm -hmm. Two of my producers on Slashback are from Nunavut, Alethe Arnokopril, Stacey Aglock mcdonald and they're amazing filmmakers and producers and writers. And so to be able to work alongside these amazing women who are doing amazing work on their own was um, has, has just been a, a really great way for me to just just be kind of learn is reconnecting with my culture but then also um just seeing these amazing women that are that are doing work within their communities has been so inspiring um and Alethea's work uh in particular she's a documentary filmmaker but she's also a she also writes and produces narrative stuff as well mm -hmm. but her documentaries about Inuit tattoos um, were really impactful in the Arctic, uh, Inuit tattoos and, um, uh, seal skin, um, seal, seal skin hunting and, and, um, seal skin clothing and that sort of thing. That kind of activism work really made a, a big impact. And actually the, the, the tattoo scene that was in Slashback where the girls kind of put these face tattoos on on their faces before they go and fight. Mm -hmm. That would not have been able to happen without Alethea's work. Um, her documentary that came out about 20 years ago now was um, really look at, at the, the history of, of 
tattooing and Inuit society. And, and there were tattoos did not exist basically 20 years ago when her movie came out. Like nobody had them on their faces except for elders that um, had basically had these full body tattoos before they had been banned. Um, but during colonization, there was um, uh, basically with, with the residential school system uh, where indigenous children were taken away from their parents and, and um, put in schools taught by nuns and priests, and they were punished for speaking their language or practicing their culture mm-hmm. and made to believe that tattoos and drum dancing and all that sort of thing was shaman uh, was and shamanism was devil worship and so when alethea's film came out and i remember i saw the movie at the theater in halloween and there was a uh, an elder there who was crying and she didn't speak english but she said that her mother had been buried in tattoos and she'd always been so ashamed but was so grateful to know that you know that these um there was nothing to be ashamed of with these tattoos mm-hmm. and um so to be able to kind of, you know, all of this, uh, all of this work of kind of reconnecting, it's, it's this really, um, it's a, it really kind of entangled and enmeshed process because the, our, our the, the loss of our culture really just happened so recently. Um, like my, my father and my aunts all attended residential schools, so they would have lived essentially nomadically um, with uh, on the land. And, and then when my dad was eight years old, he was brought to uh, Iglulik, one of the communities that was that, And they, they had the residential school there where they stayed for two years. And then they were, then he went to um, Churchill, Manitoba, which is essentially across the country. And um, that's where they, that he would go during the school year and then be kind of sent back in the summertime and basically not being able to communicate with his parents because you're not supposed to speak in Oktitut. Hmm. And so this this thing that happened, was it was so recent that, and it happened to everybody across the Arctic, and that, that it's created this, um, you know, real challenges uh, within families. And, and so that kind of reconnecting to... to our culture and and um, who has access to it and and that sort of thing is all so complicated, um, and uh, but it's also so great to see the young people really embracing the reclamation of of traditions and mm-hmm. traditions like tattooing and drum dancing, um, things that you know their their own parents or grandparents would have been made to feel a lot of shame about. Yeah, that's something I picked up in Slashback as well. Accepting your identity and appreciating your heritage, being proud of who you are and where you come from. Yeah. Do you think having the Inuit language spoken on the big screen can help continue to revitalize the language? Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I would really love just for myself to be able to to learn more of the language um, I find it's not so in a Khalid, most people, um, almost everyone speaks English and, uh, but when you go to communities, it, there is a generational gap. Like there mm. it's my, and even my sister who's from the community of Pang didn't learn to speak English until she was 14. So 
English, uh, so Inuktitut is, is very much the language spoken at home. And so when I go and I am hanging out in people's kitchens and stuff, if they're over 70 years old, then I can't really, I have to have a translator basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, and there is something that you kind of are, I, I think that there is just a, um, something that's lost when you, when you don't, when you're not understanding, um, when you're not able to hear it in the language, um, that it's meant to be, to be, spoken to you in so that's something that i want to be working on and and maybe just as a for myself uh, just the idea of being able to direct in a movie in an it would be would be really cool um and i just think just for even the there is a lot of young people that don't see they don't, don't even want to speak in Uktitut mm. or they don't see the point or um, or maybe there's even shame in it. And that's true of even of parents. Like maybe they don't want their kids to learn in Uktitut or they would rather them learn English. And I think that those, uh, you know, that, that having um, having our language is um, really special and, and so much of, you know, so much of what people are trying to say is in the language and, mm-hmm. and, and uh, it would be really uh, so sad for that to be lost. Um, because I think there would be something that would be lost uh, within the, within the stories if, if that were to be gone. Yeah. There's this part in the beginning of Slashback where we're introduced to the group of girls, the movie focuses on, and they're chasing another girl around throughout the community and I thought it was such a great way to introduce the community. When you were writing the script and thinking about what you wanted on screen, what parts of community life did you know you wanted to include? That was really fun. And actually that it was, cause you know, I, I mentioned movies like Goonies and, and that sort of thing before. And you do have this kind of, um, there, there's something familiar about seeing kind of kids riding around this town and, and usually it's like this New England town or something and mm-hmm. you're kind of getting, getting a sense of this place that you're about to, where the, the movie's going to take place. And um, so this idea that it, it was, it, I just loved the idea that there was that kind of familiarity in, in the movie style um, but within a place that is so different. And so there were a few things that, you know, just within the community of Penn, we, we knew we wanted to have the, the boats, the water. Um, and to, to be honest, there's, it, Penn is such a small place. So it's like, okay, well, you know, you, you got to get the grocery store, <laughs> you, <laughs> yeah. the, the church. And then it's like kind of like the, the bridge. And it's, so that is the town, um, the, the post office and the police, you know, the, the, the police station and the grocery and the grocery store are all right next door to each other. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it was kind of a checklist of the town and it was it was like okay it was it's really funny though and it, it, we played around with the order of where things are and, and so people in pang are like oh that's not where the bridge is or <laughs> <laughs> that's funny that's how 
Alaskans are about movies that are made, you know, about Alaska. You know, we're, <laughs> we're always so critical of like, that's not Fourth Avenue. That's not where that building is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was really fun showing it at the at in Peng. The cast and I went back to to show the movie, and um, Madeline, who plays the grandmother in the movie, she, every time she was on screen, she'd be like, "It's me!" <laughs> Jumping up, and everybody would burst out laughing. Oh, that's great. Do you have a favorite scene in Slashback? Ah, uh, what one gave you the least nightmares? Um, <laughs> Yeah, you know, I one of my one of the scenes that I love, and it really is just um, my my one of my nephews who was a nightmare to work with. But he <laughs> he was three years old when we made the movie, and he acted in he he plays one of the siblings of Micah, and he plays the little the littlest brother who's kind of kind of um, with the stuck with the group, and he was such a nightmare that. Like there would be some scenes where I'd be like, Evan, do you just want to sleep this during this one? And he'd be like, yeah. And then he would just like sleep for hours and and it would just be the easiest way to manage him. Mm -hmm. And then, but there were other times where the only way to get him to do anything without complaining was to give him a Rice Krispie square. (laughs) And so there are little scenes throughout where you can just see that he's holding a Rice Krispie square out of nowhere <laughs> in particular the crate scene when they first are everyone's getting scared he's kind of like clutching onto a rice krispie square sometimes and then sometimes he's not <laughs> <laughs> so you had to bribe him oh yeah there was actually a bit of bribing not i shouldn't <laughs> that happened <laughs> with um it's so funny to hear frankie who was eight years old at the time she's now 11 and she was such um such a talent like at eight years old you've either you've got you got natural talent or you don't there's no it, it was um it, it it was quite incredible that she was able to um uh mem- she always knew her lines she was the only person i knew that would i could show up and she could get everything in the first take it mm. was really funny yeah but um but being eight years old sometimes she would just get tired and not want to be doing things and um so she didn't like getting dragged by the polar bear she really did not like that and i thought that that would actually be something she would enjoy um and we did have part of the scenes like that we had a a body a stunt double that was doing some of the stunts but the stunt double was an adult so and this is an eight-year-old child so we did need her in the harness doing some of the stuff and during that i uh we would have this bag of candy and it was just like a, a a bag of candy and we I'd go up to her before and she would just take a look and I'd say why don't you pick pick the pick the treat that you're going to have after this take mm-hmm. and so she'd go and take a look and she'd pick one and be, okay great and we'd go back and t- to do the take and be like awesome then give her the candy and then it'd be like now the next one <laughs> <laughs> just like bribing her with candy yeah you know and just in order to get get her to keep going it was really um not ideal, but but also um, desperate times. <laughs> yeah, it is. It, at one point, the our our stunt coordinator was like, "Doesn't she realize how much money is?" I'm like, "No, she has no idea. <laughs> She's like eight. She doesn't understand." Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Or maybe she does, and and actually that was her power move. <laughs> <laughs> Compared to when you were a kid, what does your life look like now? Oh, gosh. Well, I think that there is a lot of things that are um, the same, um, but then obviously a lot of things that are different. Um, I... Sometimes I am kind of amazed that I get to, um, that part of my job is to watch movies. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like it's, it's actually important for me to be watching movies and thinking about the different cinematic styles and, and having conversations about that and, and thinking about music and all of these different ways of designing a scene and, um, and thinking about aesthetics and 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 all of these different kind of components that go into a movie and mm-hmm. and then once you've got this script it's like there's so much um research or even in the development of the script there might be some research and it's um really uh, such fun work and and the the work that I, I i you know i get to go and have my on Thursdays and Fridays my co-writer and I have our work meetings and Mm -hmm. we sit and talk and and read through our scripts and stuff together and but it it, so it is kind of crazy to think um that this is what I do for work um these things that I would have just been doing for fun when I was a kid Mm -hmm. um and so that is um that's something that is kind of crazy and is a it's also a bit of a shift too because i've um up until recently i've also been having to just you know just hustling like crazy to try and just be always uh having a, a million little things on the go and so now to have the freedom to be focusing on a few things that are important to me and and dedicating that time and is is this big shift and and that feels great and also sometimes i'm like feeling a little guilty about it but i think uh i feel like in in a lot of ways just like when i was younger you know i'm figuring things out there were times when i was on the set of slashback i remember one of the last few days it was we only had a couple days left to film so we and we still had you know, we had a few scenes to get mm-hmm. and we just knew that there was no way we could shoot everything we needed in, in the time we had. So we had to rethink the final scene and change the action and and blocking around. And it was really late at night and it was myself and my cinematographer, my special effects supervisor, a couple of other people in the room. And we're sitting there with like the the fake knife blocking the scene out trying to figure out how we could do it and mm-hmm. and oh what if the blood sprayed over here on this wall and instead and it was like just this fun creative conversation and we're all exhausted but it was like this is actually kind of what it it feels like I'm hanging out with my friends in high school figuring out how we're going to get the blood to spray on the wall in a, in the right way and it's like yeah. um there are there are elements of that that is it is like you know just so so fun to kind of uh, um that and and that also this kind of reminder that you're always kind of learning and figuring mm-hmm. things out and that and with this job you know it's it, 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 there's always going to be this new challenge 
Um, and it is really hard. Like, I mean, even this script, like the script, the second script, it's been hard to write. It's mm. been emotionally challenging. My co-writer and I have like kind of been through the ringer with it. Um, and we're about to jump into like three other projects together and, and, um, it, luckily a little less emotionally exhausting, but, um, but it's still, you know, it's, um, uh, it's, it's definitely cool to be, um, working with, uh, really kind of, you know, creative people, um, to, to figure things out. Mm -hmm. There's this saying that I've been seeing and hearing lately, and it goes something like the future is indigenous or the way forward is indigenous. Have you heard of this? I don't know. Um, it kind of sounds familiar. Yeah. As far as my understanding of the saying goes, it means that indigenous traditions and life ways can rescue Western consumption from itself. Yeah, I, I think that that's, I think, like, I mean, I, I, like I mentioned, uh, the uh, kind of getting to hang out with lots of First Nations people mm -hmm. um, professionally, there's this one, one idea of the seven generations that has always, um, I thought, to be so amazing and just and, and it kind of is this thing that feeds into all aspects of indigenous life and it's just that with every action you should just be thinking about the impact that it has seven generations from now and that also this idea that you're the seventh generation that that being grateful for the fact that when you've got things that it's because someone seven generations ago was thinking about you so mm -hmm. you should it's it's important that you know that you receive that with gratitude and um i i think definitely this this idea of thinking outside of just yourself um is is important and um and definitely when it comes to to so much when it comes it relates to to climate and um when it, it, people that are connected directly with the land and that's indigenous people, but also other people are connected to land too. like have a better understanding. Mm -hmm. Um, and people that have been connected to it generationally have a, have a better understanding of, of how things are changing. And in the Arctic, it's obvious and, and hunters just know that there's certain things that have been done forever that now you the certain paths hunting paths that you would take that you can't take anymore because of because they're no longer frozen over and things like that uh when i i think about this with i mean technology one something that's that you often is often said is um is that diversity is key to innovation mm -hmm. and diversity of thought that it, like you know not thinking the exact same way is not going to be helpful um for growth mm -hmm. and um there were these cameras that google had created that were these really cool i mean i don't know if they're that cool <laughs> they are but then th there's really not a place for you to watch the stuff that you made so is it that cool okay but these kind of like mini imax cameras so you could shoot um it's basically shooting uh 3d but for these um like viewfinder things um mm -hmm. and 
so they had these special cameras that they never ended up releasing, but they created and they wanted people to test them out. And, and so I was, I had an opportunity to test them out. There was this, this group of people in, in Germany that I had become friends with and they, they had access to the cameras as well. And there was this idea of going to Nunavut and doing some shooting and, and working with some young people to train them on how to use the cameras. And then one of the, one of the, German guys said, well, maybe actually what we should do, because we don't know how to use these cameras, is first go and teach the youth how to use the 2D cameras, because we know how to use those and we know how to teach that. Yeah. And then we'll figure out, we'll be testing the cameras while we're there, and then we'll go back and then we'll teach people how to use these cameras. And it was, um, for me, it was like, well, this is this really exciting opportunity where you know with these new technologies where no one's an expert where we can be going in and and these kids are going to know as much about how to use them as we are and we're able to come on an equal level and this idea that we have to kind of enter into indigenous communities as these educators um is just kind of a a bit racist and and um i think that and one of the cool things about emerging technologies is that is that um, it does, you know, kind of require breaking things and refiguring things out in order to to kind of move things along. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of anyone can can enter and and um, be figuring things out because that's where everyone's kind of that's the point where everyone's entering. Yeah. Well, Nyla, that does it for my questions. Great. You know, I wanted to thank you so much for chatting with me today. And I also want you to know that I really enjoyed Slashback and I really appreciated the Inuit representation. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. For more information about the Anchorage Museum, visit anchoragemuseum.org. This podcast was produced by me, Cody Liska, for the Anchorage Museum, with additional help from Julie Decker. Chattermark's music is produced by Keys Open Doors. (laughs) ¶¶